Good morning, everybody. So great to see you again this morning. We are in Genesis chapter 6. That's the very first book of the Bible. Just go over six chapters, and that's where we're going to get started this morning. Uh, if you're a guest with us and this is your first time, you caught us just on the front end of a new series called The Story. We're going to try to do this miraculous thing of going from Genesis to Revelation through the whole Bible in six months. And so doing that requires a couple of things. It requires, number one, that I talk really, really fast. Sorry about that in advance. It requires, uh, secondly, that uh, that we hit the high points. So we're flying at 30,000 feet. So for those of you who like a lot of detail, uh, there are going to be some cases where we're going to dive beneath the surface. But for the most part, we're just flying overhead so that you can have a good understanding of the framework of the entire Bible so that when you're reading it at home, reading it with your spouse or your kids, you'll have a better understanding of where the particular passage that you're looking at fits within that larger story. And we began that larger story last week where the Bible begins. It tells us that God created everything that we see and everything that we don't see. That there is one God, one personal, all-powerful, supreme being who created everything that we see, everything that we don't see. He did it for His glory. He did it in perfection. He did it with order. He did it with beauty. He did it with meaning and purpose. And then He took all of that and He placed us as the crown jewel over that creation to be kings and queens over that creation. So God created us, and then our first parents decided, you know, life might be better if we were standing or sitting in the place of God. And so they rebelled against God. The result of that is sin now infects not just our first parents, but everyone that comes after them, including myself and all of you who are sitting there. That's what the story of the Bible teaches, that we are now, because of Adam and Eve's rebellion and the subsequent rebellion that is in our own hearts, we are sin. We have sinned against God. We are separated from God, but God didn't leave us there. Even in the earliest chapters of Genesis, chapter 3, verse 15 in particular, He promises to send somebody to fix it. And so if you look over here and you see the seed, that's the promise. He says, I'm going to send the seed of the woman and she's going to crush, He's going to crush the head of the serpent. So no matter where we are in the storyline, if it's today or if it's weeks from now, and you feel like, man, I'm three or four feet underwater, I don't really remember where I was, you stick your head back over the, back up above the water level, and you look over at the seed, and you remember, this is where we're headed. God's promise to send a Redeemer. So the story we're going to look at this morning, which is the ark and the flood and the resulting bow in the cloud, and you can see the dove there that Terry has painted with the olive branch coming back. God, after killing everybody, has now redeemed one family to start all over again. That story, too, connects ultimately with this one. So this is what matters above all else. God promising to send a Redeemer, and not just to redeem Adam and Eve, not just to redeem you and me, but the whole cosmos. Because Scripture tells us that creation has collapsed in upon itself. This is why there's natural evil. It's why there's societal evil and all of these other things. The sin curse has taken its effect on every single part of the created order. And God is going to come back. And we see that right at the end of Genesis chapter 3. A cherub is set at the garden. Adam and Eve are outside of it. But that cherub is there to guard the way back to the tree of life. We're headed back toward the way things were always supposed to be one day. And that's where we ended last week. Now, before we get to the story of the flood, which is something that will probably be familiar with some of you, you need to know that there are a few things that transpire that allow us to see life outside the garden. When we end Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve are outside the garden. They're separated from God. And the next few chapters, until we get to chapter 6, remind us of the consequences of life 
outside the garden. Several things pop up here. First of all, Adam, or Cain and Abel, the two sons of Adam and Eve, and the former kills the latter. He murders him. This demonstrates to us that sin doesn't just reside in ourself. It also affects our relationships. And even our most intimate relationships can turn toxic and even violent. So when there's dysfunction in a family, dysfunction in a relationship, or wherever it might exist, it's because the sin curse doesn't just stay in me. It affects everybody else. This is why you can't just wrap your kids in bubble wrap and keep them in everything Christian and expect that they're going to be separated from sin. You know why? Because when they come home, they come home to you. All right? If I thought I could insulate my kids from sin by keeping them away from culture, I would keep them away from culture. But I'm not going to do that. You know why? Because they come home to their sinful-hearted daddy. All right? So everywhere we go, every relationship, everything is tainted. The second thing we see is technological advance. As you move through chapter 4, you see the development of metallurgy, tent making, stringed instruments, these kinds of things. And it shows us a couple of things. Number one, even in sin, God's common grace allows us to know things, allows us to develop things, allows us to advance even as a society. But the second thing it reminds us of is this. Scientific and technological advance is not in and of itself a sign of God's blessing. Because in spite of all of this, in spite of the rapid increase in the human population, which we also see, we see a fourth thing, and that is multiplied wickedness. Multiplied wickedness. So, no matter how smart we get, no matter how much science we discover, no matter how many things we invent, sin remains a problem, and the more of us there is, the worse it gets. It gets worse. Multiplied wickedness. So let's, let's think about this concept for just a moment. Look at, look at this passage. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And then just a few verses later it says this, The earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. It has never been as bad as it was then. Now I said that to a few of our folks the other week and they were, they were a little startled by that. And they have, Pastor, have you looked around? Right? Have you seen our culture? I mean, surely, however bad it was in Noah's day, it really couldn't be as bad as it is today. And I love you, but that's just a very myopic view of history. I'll prove it to you with just one example. Take a look at this picture. Anybody know who this guy is? This is a guy named Dylan Roof. Uh, almost a couple of years ago, my family and I were vacationing in Mount Pleasant in my home state of South Carolina, <clears throat> vacationing Mount Pleasant's an island. It's right off the mainland, just across the Cooper River Bridge from Charleston. And one night, we get back from the beach. I turn on the television, and I see that just a few miles from us, in an African-American church in my home state, this man, this young man, walked in and killed nine people in cold blood. They found him guilty. They began his sentencing trial just a couple of weeks ago. And he testified for, on, on his own behalf. And he said, basically, I'm not sorry for what I did. I'm just sorry that we have to continue to live with a lower race. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. That's evil. Okay? That's evil. And you think, surely, in Noah's day, it couldn't have been that bad. But what I want you to imagine is a world, as you look down at verse 5 of chapter 6, every thought of the heart of every man was like that guy. I want you to imagine a world 
where there's not just one, there's not just hundreds, there's not just these little enclaves of racism and murder in different pockets around the world. Everybody's a racist. Everybody's a murderer. Everybody thinks violent thoughts. Everybody thinks they have the right to do whatever they want to do, take whatever they want to take, kill whoever they want to kill. There is no law. There is no order. There are no social compacts or societies or constitutions or police departments or judges or anything to bring righteous. And everybody could care less about righteousness. Everybody is Dylan Roof. And if nine people die or 9,000 people die, nobody cares. That was Noah's day. And you can begin to understand when you think about a day like that, why God would say what he would say. I've had enough. I've had enough. But before he does that, we see some hope. See, we don't just see multiplied wickedness. We see hope. And it actually begins back in chapter 4 from the line of Seth. Abel is dead. He's been murdered by his brother Cain because of what Cain did. He's now disqualified from carrying that seed forward. And so God appoints another sign of hope, a sign that the seed will continue. And Eve conceives and she bears another son and she names him Seth, which means appointed, chosen one, the one who will carry the line. And eight generations later, Seth descended, a man by the name of Noah, finds grace. In the midst of all the multiplied wickedness, he finds grace. And then God says this to Noah, I have determined... To make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher, gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth will die. This is God saying, I've had enough. We're done. I am finished with this. I am killing everybody, and some of you struggle with that, right? It just doesn't seem fair. And you know what? You're right. It's not fair. You know what fair is? Fair is killing Noah, too. That's what fair is. Fair is just wipe out everybody, and we're done. But God chooses not to do that. He chooses out of this wickedness a man by the name of Noah. And verse 8 tells us that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. See, fair, like I say, that would have been to have killed Noah as well, because we got to get this. We, we have this picture, the Sunday school picture of Noah, that somehow he sticks out among the rest of the crowd, even from the very beginning of the story, and he's one of the good guys, and that's why God's favor is upon him, and that's really not true. The favor comes prior to the righteousness, because Noah is every bit as wicked, every bit as evil as everybody else, up until the point that God shows him Grace. And we get this picture like that. Too many Sunday school classes have done this. This arky, arky picture of Noah. Cute little boat. Two little giraffe heads poking up out of the top of it. You know, and Noah's just this really nice guy that did that. And Noah was not a nice guy. He was not a good guy. He was a bad guy transformed into a good guy by the grace of God. Just like anybody else that we see goodness in them. We see that trait. That is a sign of the grace of God, not of the inherent goodness of that person. And if you don't believe that, read the end of the story. I mean, there's some stuff we're not going to have time to get into the depths of it or the details of it. But, but think about what happens at the end of the story. Even through the faithfulness and everything else, they get out on dry land. He builds an altar. Everything seems fine. And then the next thing you know, Noah gets drunk, strips naked, passes out in his tent like some redneck on vacation. <laughs> 
Okay? And, and so that, here's this area. That one never makes it into the coloring book, does it? And kids, now that you've, now that you've colored the boat, flip over the page and there's naked Noah, drunk out of his mind. Color that. That one never makes it. Nor should it. Right? Yeah, there are saying some things that are child appropriate. But that story's there for a reason. It is to remind us of the true nature of every person on the planet, including this individual Noah. It's also there to remind us again the distinction between the faith that you and I hold, if you are a follower of Jesus, and any other faith on the planet. Every religious system, every religious philosophy in the world essentially says there's good guys and there's bad guys. And if you want to live and have a relationship with God, you've got to be a good guy. And here's our holy book. Here are our prophets. Here's our our plan for prayer. Here's our religious ritual. Here's all the things that we have constructed that you need to do in order to be a good guy. When we come to the Christian faith, we do not find any semblance of that story. There are not good guys and there are bad guys. The Christian faith teaches all of us are bad guys, but God, through His transforming grace, can change bad guys into good guys. That's why I'm here. Because God took a bad guy and changed him into a good guy. That's why so many of you are sitting right there. Because God took bad people and he transformed them into good people. That's the message of the gospel. God, by his grace, does this. And God here chooses Noah and grants him transforming grace. And he tells him as a result, everything on the earth is going to die except for you and your family. And the animals I'm going to tell you to gather, I will spare you and I'm going to do it through an ark. Now, what you see here is actually a replica, but it's a a life-size replica. You can find it at the Creation Museum just outside of Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, I think it opens up soon if it hasn't already. But it looked probably something like this. And this is a honking big thing. This ship is 450 feet long. It's 75 feet wide. It's 45 feet high. Its internal volume is 1.2 million, 1.4, excuse me, 1.4 million cubic feet. That's enough to fill 522 standard railroad boxcars. That's the size of this thing. And it is the biggest boat in the desert. You ever thought about that? These people never saw rain. They're not near a body of water. They think this dude's crazy. Back during the holidays, I was doing some sermon prep at the sweet shop because, I don't know, I just do sermon prep better when there's a muffin in front of me. And so I, I was sitting there, and I looked outside, and, and here's this guy, wave, real friendly guy, waving at everybody. And I noticed he had a sign, and I noticed some people kind of snickering, and then I noticed a few people waving, and a couple of folks used to give him a thumbs up. And then, then, he turned, then the sign turned towards me, and it said, Believe in Jesus today. He's the only way. Right there on German Street, right there at the corner there where McMurrin Hall is across there. And I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, now, so a lot of people, even some Christians would look at that and they would go, man, there's just better ways to do that. And, and principally, I would probably agree with them. But I thought to myself, you know what, that guy's on my team. I may not do it exactly that way, but that, that dude's on my team. And so I went out and I introduced myself. First thing he did, Hey, friend, that's so good to see you this morning. Can I share with you how you can live forever? That's first words out of his mouth. And I thought, oh, yeah, yeah, this guy's on my team. I like this guy. And I just gave him a big hug. Found out he was a local pastor uh, at a church here in the Panhandle. And you know what? Everybody in the world probably thought that dude was crazy driving by. But this is his assignment. This is his assignment. And this is Noah's assignment. Get up and build a boat in the middle of the desert. 
And the time period, we're going to get to this in just a moment, is about 120 years. So this is a long time for people to think you are nuts. Okay? And he just, he just keeps on doing it. And I want you to think about that, guys, particularly the men in the room. All right? I want you to think about this concept of faithfulness. Because that's Noah, building this gigantic thing in the desert. He has experienced the transforming grace of God. And the natural result of that is he will say yes to whatever God tells him to do. Including building a boat in the middle of the desert. And so while every other man on the earth is living like a Dylan Roof. Every other man on the earth is living in sin, sexually immoral, preying on helpless people, preying on women, acting in selfishness, having a good time, living, eating, drinking, being merry like a bunch of meatheads hanging out at Hooters. Noah gets up every single morning. He gets his clothes on. He straps on his tool belt. He grabs his sons. There's something else. How about, how about training up the next generation not to be a bunch of lazy slobs? And they go out to the job site and they work and they are faithful. And they work hard. And they get this done. And they do it every morning of every day, of every week, of every month, of every year for 120 years. That is the sign of a faithful man of God. But you know what it's also a sign of? The patience of God. The patience of God. That's still true today. You know, you have your entire life to repent and turn to God. You have your entire life to come to Him, to submit to the will of your Creator. No matter what you have done, I don't care what you have done in your past. If you are still sucking wind, there is an opportunity for you. And you can come to Christ. And God gives, even though He says, I'm going to wipe them all out. There are still yet 120 years of warnings. Where do they come from? This crazy dude out in the desert building a boat. You better repent. You better get right. Flood's coming. Day of judgment is coming. There's still an opportunity until we get to chapter 7. God's patience has run out. He's a patient God. He's given them warning after warning. He's given them 120 years. He's given them examples, not only in Noah, but in other godly men like Enoch. And they have refused to listen. And so now judgment comes in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, On that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. So it's coming up from the earth. It's coming down from the sky. It's not going to take very long, is it? Before it's above your head. Before it's above the roof of your house. Before it's above the highest mountain. Before long, where, like any other expression of God's wrath, there is no place to run. And there is no place to hide. And there's no philosophy to hide behind. And whatever you think doesn't matter at this moment. Because judgment has arrived. This is the point of no return for every person on the earth. And that day, too, is coming for every single one of us. That day. When the door of that ark shuts, there's a day coming when it's going to shut. And there's not going to be any other opportunity. In the book of Proverbs, we read this, that a man who stiffens his neck after much correction will suddenly be destroyed beyond remedy. There's a day coming beyond which there's no opportunity for repentance for you. There's no opportunity to make things right with God. There's no opportunity after that to get your life in order. That day has finally come for these people who find themselves outside of the ark. And I would simply entreat you, don't wait for that day to get here. Turn to Him today. 
because of the same day they're judged is the same day that Noah and his family are saved. Look at verse 7. On that very same day, Noah and his sons Shem and Ham and Japheth and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. God chooses Noah. God selects him for purposes, instructs him, arranges everything, surrounds and seals Noah and his family. This is a picture of what God does when he saves you today. doesn't do it with an ark. He does it with the blood of Christ. But when he surrounds you and saves you and seals you, that's what happened. And after this comes 40 days and night of rain. See, a lot of people think salvation's about getting what I want. Salvation's about being happy. Salvation's about getting money. Salvation's about having a better marriage. Salvation's about having a hotter sex life. Salvation's about having more well-behaved kids. And while those sometimes may be really, really awesome byproducts of the gospel, they are not about the gospel. The gospel is to be saved from the wrath that is going on outside the covenant family. But it doesn't mean everything's always going to be pleasant unless you think that rolling around in a 450-foot-long boat for over a year and never seeing land and being surrounded by animal excrement is pleasant. Okay, Because that's what happens. That's what happens. Forty days and forty nights of rain, followed by another 150 days before they even see a mountaintop. And even then... They're not setting foot on it. How do I know that? Because this dove, before, before, he reaches, before he brings back that olive branch, he goes out twice and he comes back with nothing. There's nowhere to land. So if they're seeing mountaintops after 150 days, they're seeing them underwater. Okay? Imagine a flood. Imagine a deluge that comes to our area and it is so widespread. And we finally all somehow get on this big boat and we're able to float around. And it's 150 days before one of you goes, hey, look, Pastor, there's South Mountain. Where? Oh, about six feet underwater, right there. There it is. And finally, finally, the ark comes to rest. And then we begin to see something truly profound start to happen. God strikes a covenant with Noah. Now our church name is covenant. We hear that that word a lot, covenant. In the 21st century, particularly in the West, we don't appreciate that very much. But a covenant is an agreement. And when God makes an agreement, He keeps it. And God makes covenants all through the Bible. You see all kinds of different things, covenants, arrangements, promises that he makes to certain people. Then those promises are fulfilled, and then they're done. Okay? So not every time you see God strike a covenant doesn't necessarily mean that that's true today. Let me give you an example. The covenant with Moses included the tabernacle, the forthcoming temple, the sacrificial system, the dietary restrictions. All of those kinds of things are wrapped up in a single covenant that God struck with Moses and the people of Israel who would come after him. But it was a temporary covenant. Hebrews 8 tells us it has gone away now. It's obsolete. It ain't coming back. You don't need a temple. You don't need a tabernacle. You don't need dietary restrictions. You don't need those things because those were merely shadows of the real thing that was coming in Christ. And now that Christ in his death and resurrection has come and fulfilled that covenant, we don't have to live under that covenant anymore. Okay? So no, no, don't have to worry about, you know, are these crops alongside these crops or what kind of material are my clothes made out of? And praise God, I can eat pulled pork to the greater glory of God and the joy of all mankind. Right? Amen? 
We, we've got some dear friends in both the Jewish and Muslim communities that we reach out to on occasion, and we, we had dinner with them one night, both groups actually, and, and I'm riding around with, with Seth, my, my second son, the next day, and we're, we're just driving around. I don't even remember what we were doing, but we were out, father-son kind of deal, and he started asking me, Daddy, how come a sock can't eat like ham and stuff like that? And so I started telling him. I said, well, buddy, our Muslim friends and our Jewish friends, this is what they believe. And, and so we didn't have it on the table last night because we want to show respect to them. We don't want to dishonor them or offend them unnecessarily. We'd like them to come to Jesus. But, you know, throwing a big slab of bacon in front of them is really not the way to, you know, for that to happen. And so uh, I said, so, that, so that's, that's why we respect them. Oh, okay. Well, is it wrong to eat that stuff? And I said, no, it's not wrong to eat that stuff. And he said, why? And I explained it to him. All of this has been fulfilled in Christ. And my 11-year-old son's conclusion to that lesson was to look at heaven from the back seat of my car and go, thank you so much, Jesus, for what you did, because I love bacon. And I said, buddy, it's about a whole lot more than that, but you are your father's son. That's absolutely true. This is going to be great, yeah? We can eat bacon. We can eat pork. There's a lot of different things we can do. It's not bad. Why? Because that covenant isn't everlasting. But there are four covenants mentioned by God in the Old Testament in particular that, as we sit here, are still in full effect. The first one is the one we're about to look at. That's the covenant with Noah, Genesis chapter 9. And I'm about to kind of unpack for you the stipulations of that covenant. The second one is the covenant with Abraham. We're going to look at that one next week. It's codified. It's actually mentioned in chapter 12. It's codified in in Genesis chapter 17. And it simply says that it is through you, your line, that I'm going to bring about a great nation. And through that nation, I'm going to bless the rest of the world. Ultimately through the person and the work of Jesus. Then the third covenant is the covenant with David. Second Samuel chapter 7, God makes a covenant to David and he says, From this point forward, there will always be a king from your line sitting on the throne of Israel. Now that may be confusing to some of you because you're like, well, Joel, didn't the kingdom like dissipate for a long time? And then, you know, the Romans came in and they destroyed the temple and then you had thousands of years and... Now we finally got this Israel thing back, but they're over there in the Middle East, and they're not a monarchy. They're they're like this British parliamentary system. How do we make all that fit? And the answer again is you got to go back to the seed. What's the promise? What is the ultimate promise of God? Is that through that nation I'm going to bring a seed, an ultimate Israelite, who will conquer sin and death, who will conquer our enemy Satan, and who will sit on a throne where King Jesus still sits. The Israelite from the line of David still sits on the throne, folks, right now. For all, Jew and Gentile, who believe in him. That's God's promise to David. That, too, is an everlasting covenant. And all of that is made possible because of the new covenant that God gave through the lips of the prophet Jeremiah. We'll get there eventually through this series as well. Jeremiah chapter 32 says this, The law in and of itself is not enough. Okay? In a few weeks, we're going to be looking at the, the stipulations of the law. We're going to be in Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. I'm not telling you what week it's going to be because I want you to show up. All right? But I know that some of you, you're just like, that's how you, you made this New Year's resolution to read through the entire Bible. And along about March, you're going to be really tempted to break it. Why is it? Because there's all this weird stuff about animals and blood and different kinds of things I'm supposed to do. And, and, and burn this and soak that and use that color. And we, I don't understand any of this. All right, we're going to get to that. But the main point that's made in the New Covenant is that is not enough because not only does it put you to sleep, it reveals your impotence. You can't obey it, and neither can I. 
We need an ultimate lawgiver, and we need somebody to write that law on our hearts. That's, that's the point of Jeremiah 32. No more outward law. There's not going to be a need for it, because I'm going to write my law on the heart of my people so that they will not turn away. Okay? Those are the four everlasting covenants as they are unfolded in the Bible. Today, we look at the one he strikes with Noah. What does that covenant entail? What's it entail? There are three parts to it. Here's the first one. We can now eat animals. And all the people of God said, yeah. Now, if you're a vegetarian, you can remain a vegetarian. I think I mentioned this last week. There's nothing wrong with that. You're keeping the price of meat down for people like me. That works. I'm okay with that. But, um, but we can now eat animals. Now, you're like, Joel, what does that have to do with the seed? And my, my best scholarly opinion right now is this. I... <laughs> I really don't know, but I think it's really cool. Because there's no George Foreman grills or Brazilian steakhouses. There's no 14-ounce ribeye at Boyd's without this. So I'm just thankful for it. All right? Here's the opportunity. Now, don't eat it. Don't, don't drain the... When he talks about not, not eating it with its blood, he's talking about don't eat it while it's still alive. Okay? I want you to be separate from the pagan world that would actually do something like that. You kill it first. There's a humane way to do this, but you have permission. Here's the second thing we find. The establishment of human government. See, prior to this, there was no real civilization because there was no social contract that people would have with one another. We have a social compact, right, here in this country. It's called the Constitution. This is how we're going to behave. This is how we're going to operate as a nation. These are the laws that are set up. This is how we're going to respect each other. And so now you have the giving of this establishment. Why is that? Because God doesn't ever want it to get this bad again. And government actually provides a good role in keeping evil back. Now, there's a couple of things we need to say about government. Number one, government isn't always good. It's not always good. And so... That doesn't mean that just because government says something that we have to capitulate to it. God's people sometimes have to protest government. The same Bible that contains Romans 13, where Paul said that government is an instrument for good, is the same Bible that contains a phrase in Revelation where John refers to the very same government Paul was talking about as the whore of Babylon. So not all government is good. Not all government is good. But government and, and, and government cannot save you from anything. It can't save you from poverty. It can't save you from your own stupidity. It can't. It certainly cannot save your soul and take you to heaven. That's not the purpose for it. But God gives it here as an avenue by which there will not be the level of evil in the world ever again that there was in Noah's day. Government is the instrument that He uses to do that, and embedded within that is verse 6, which says this, Whoever sheds a man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. So if we haven't gotten controversial enough yet, let's talk about that for a minute. What what are we talking about? This, This is the death penalty. This is the granting of government authority through the social compact to take a human life, if necessary. Pastor, do you believe that's biblical? Well, I'll tell you, first of all, there are a lot of opinions about that, and I respect a lot of them. I have friends in Protestant and Catholic scholarly circles that disagree with me about this. I understand their arguments. I get it, and I love them. And if you disagree, that's fine, too. You disagree with your pastor on this. I love you, too. But, yeah, yeah, government absolutely has the right to take a life 
if necessary, in order to prevent evil from moving forward in an unjust way. Now, for those of you who are pro-death penalty who just went, oh, great, so glad the pastor agrees with me. It's not quite that simple. Do I believe in principle in the death penalty? I do. Do I believe that it should always be meted out or that it is always justly administered here? No. No. Because we're a society that although we only contain 5% of the world's population, we house 25% of the world's prisoners to a large extent for profit. We're a society that if you can't afford a good lawyer, you're probably going to get a worse punishment than the guy who can. And it's really interesting to me how that often cuts through racial lines. We're a society that has murdered over the last 30 plus years 57 million of its most vulnerable citizens through legalized abortion. Can that kind of society truly have the moral compass necessary to decide when it's okay to take a life? I'll just leave you with that for now. But the big point here is that government has this responsibility to hold evil back. It can be a defective deterrent against evil. That's why, again, Paul says in Romans 13, if you're good, you have no reason to fear. But if you are evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. Or in our day, he does not bear an automatic weapon in vain. Okay? These are things to think about. But God is saying, I'm giving you the ability to make social compacts with each other, to develop just societies so that it doesn't get this bad again. And then here's the third part of the Noahic Covenant. It never will get this bad again. However bad you think things are, they have been worse before, and God says it will never get to the time of Noah again. This is why. This is the sign of the covenant that I will make between me and you, every living creature that is with you, and for all future generations, even to this point. God, Joel, is there ever going to be another global flood? No. Why? Because there will never, it will never be necessary again because God will never let it get this bad again. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature and all flesh. No more global floods. Until the seed comes, I'm putting some measures in place to make sure it never gets this bad ever again. This is God's promise to Noah. It is God's promise to you. It is God's promise to me. It'll never happen again. Let's talk a little bit about some principles as we close out. What do we take away from this story? The first one is this. Our sinful capacity. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, we don't want to believe that. We really don't want to believe that in the darkest recesses of our soul, we are capable of the very things those meatheads in Noah's day were capable of. We don't want to think that in the deepest, darkest recesses of our soul, that any of us could become a Dylan Roof. Or this guy. See, depending on what generation you're from, you more often associate either with the guy on the left or the guy on the right, don't you? See, I, I'm the generation that so immediately I think of the name Bill Cosby, I go to the guy on the left. Jello pudding pops, Fat Albert, that kind of stuff. Hey, hey, You know, that sort of thing. I love that show. And this guy was amazing. The Cosby show that came out in the 80s, it was wonderful. And then all of a sudden, not too long ago, 
an attorney announced that he was representing 33 women accusing the guy on the right of sexual assault. And all of us immediately looking at the television went, are these even the same person? Can they even be the same person? Is he capable of that? It's hard to believe that. It's hard to believe that. But you know why it's hard to believe that? It's because we spent so much time building fantasy around the guy on the left, we never got to see the reality of the guy on the right. And that can happen in your own soul as well. See, there's a fantasy world that surrounds this picture on the left. And in order to cut through that, to realize not just what this man is capable of, but what I'm capable of, what you're capable of, we've got to cut through the fantasy and realize there was no Cliff Huxtable. There was no Claire Huxtable. There was no law practice. There was no obstetrics practice. There was no Brownstone Village townhome in Brooklyn. There was no Hillman College. There were no five well-adjusted kids. All of that was a myth. And we can't believe Bill Cosby's capable of this because we're so enamored with Cliff Huxtable. And what's true of a guy like that is true of you. It's true of me. That we don't often take an honest look into our own souls and realize that the same sinful nonsense that created the kind of unspeakable evil that existed in Noah's day still resides in your heart and mine. And it has to be crucified on a daily basis. We are capable of horrible things, all of us. Number two... God's righteous justice. Everything that is on the earth will die. Seems harsh to think that God would kill everybody on the planet. But if what is actually said about human nature in this story is actually true, then the most horrifying, vengeful, unjust, hateful thing God could ever do is nothing. God is righteous when He judges. He is righteous when He kills. He is also righteous, as we will see as we move continually through this story, in demonstrating grace. That's the third thing we see here. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That's where Noah's redemptive story begins. That's where those 120 years of faithfulness, followed by 40 days and 40 nights of rain, followed by another year of faithfulness, all of that begins with God's grace. God's grace transforms. We are not a faith that believes in good guys and bad guys. We are a faith that believes that bad guys are transformed into good guys by the grace of God. God's coming promise. God's coming promise. I will never do this again. And through the line of Seth, now preserved through Noah and his family, I'm continually going to honor the seed. Remember, that's where it all starts. I'm going to send somebody to fix this. And at this point in the story, this is what we see. We're following the line, aren't we? We're following the lineage. It's now Noah and his family. God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. Then finally, God's invitation. From the time he decided to send the flood until the time it actually came was a period of 120 years. You cannot tell me that God isn't patient. He gave them time. He gave them warning through Noah. He gave them examples through Enoch. He gave them absolutely every reason to turn from their sins, and they refused to listen, and so he killed them. And your Creator and mine has every right to do that, but he will not do it before he offers an invitation that lasts a really, really long time. He is a patient God. He's a patient God. But that time can come to an end at any moment. 
every single one of us right now, there is a day coming beyond which we have no more opportunity. And you need to respond to the Lord your God while His invitation stands before the windows of hope, heaven open, not to drop rain on you, but to receive you into the judgment of God, which Hebrews tells us is a consuming fire. Don't let that day come for you. Don't face His wrath with no substitute to absorb your sin and no advocate to plead your case and no hope for where you will spend eternity. There's still time. As we sit here right now, there's still time. And the big question is this. Will you be your family's Noah for future generations? Think about this. Shem, Ham, Japheth, the generations that came after them, all because of God's grace, all because of God's grace being worked out in a faithful man. I mean, that's, that's the story of my life. It's the story of my life. My daddy will celebrate his 72nd birthday a week from Monday. I love that man. I learned how to share my faith with that guy. I took evangelism courses in seminary, but I learned how to share my faith down in the bottom of an oil pit with a big, huge 26,000 gross vehicle weight milk truck over top of us. These, these are the days before OSHA cared about kids being down in places like that. And I'm down there with my daddy. and He's, he's pulling the oil out of the front end, and there's another guy pulling the, the fluid out of the rear end, and they're servicing this truck. And my dad's telling this man about Christ. That's my father. But his life didn't start that way. My daddy was a moonshiner. First three years of my life, that's how he put diapers on my butt. Illegal liquor money. And yet, there was this preacher about a half a mile down the road that would not leave us alone. And I grew up in the home of a man who didn't just affect my life, probably in all likelihood changed the trajectory of our entire family by allowing the grace of God to be manifest in his life. And I wonder how many men like that are in here. How many of you want to be men and women like that? How many of you want to be the kind of people that generations from now... See, we get to Abraham next week after Noah has long been dead, but now that promise is about to be seated in a nation of people, and all of that comes about as a result of the faithfulness of one guy. How many of us would like to be like that, that after we are dead and gone, my great-grandchildren and my great-grandchildren look back, and they go, you know what, great-grandpa, great-grandpa... Great, great grandpa, boy, he had his demons, and boy, he fought with a lot of stuff, and he wasn't perfect, but in the end, he was a faithful man. And now here we are as a family, gathered around the throne, worshiping Jesus because of that guy. That can be your future and mine. And that is the life lesson that we read in this story. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the continuation of a phenomenal story of your grace, of your judgment, of your presence, of your faithfulness, of your promise. We thank you for the promise of eternal life that is modeled in this story and continues to be the theme throughout the storyline of Scripture. And Lord, if there's anyone here today who hasn't benefited from that, I pray this is the day that they find faith in you. God, change us, transform us. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.